Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors educational podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. Our special guest on this episode is Colleen Honisberg. She's Associate Professor at Stanford Law School and a former Economic Fellow at the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. Professor Honisberg is the author of a recent article published in the Vanderbilt Law Review entitled The Case for Individual Audit Partner Accountability. Professor Honisberg's article argues that the persistence of accounting failures around the world indicates the need for improving audit quality. The solution? Auditor scorecards. Welcome, Professor Honisberg. Thanks for taking the time to discuss with us your thought-provoking article. Thank you for having me. Professor, the, the premise of your article is that poor audit quality is contributing to accounting failures. What is the evidence to support that premise? Yeah, so that's a great question. And um, I want to really highlight that first, the accounting failures are obviously driven by the companies and that you know they are the ones who are responsible for the numbers. They are the ones who are putting together the financial statements. The auditors are just coming in at the end and you know, reviewing what has been put together by the company. So when I say that you know, the auditors are responsible for, or I guess, you know, if you take the premise that auditors are responsible for audit failures or for accounting failures, what I really want to highlight is that the you know companies are creating those failures, but the auditors are letting that through, and that's what the what's you know what the function we want the auditors to prevent. So, in terms of evidence, now it's hard to get great evidence on this for public companies because. In, you know, for example, the U.S., we have this mandatory audit. But what we do see is in other areas, such as, for example, hedge funds, um, which haven't had mandatory audits the same way, when those funds adopt an audit and begin audit procedures, we see a decrease in misreporting. Um, similarly, if they switch to a higher quality audit auditor, we see the same thing. And you see that with public companies, too, although we can't really investigate the inception you know, or initiation of an audit, um, we can look at what happens when they switch to a higher quality auditor. And when we you know, see that, we see a decrease in audit failures such as restatements. So there you know, is solid evidence that um, high quality audits and high quality auditors can reduce um, the frequency that audit failures actually occur. But I just wanna highlight, you know, the companies are creating those failures. It's just that the auditors should be preventing them from kind of getting through. So Professor, what is an auditor scorecard and how would it improve <laughs> audit quality? So this is, I think, really getting into my article. And one thing is that it's kind of unique about the audit industry compared to some other areas. Um, is that when you think about like the reputation of an auditor, we really focus on the firm level. And we think, okay, you know, we've got these big four, we have KPMG, PwC, Ernst & Young, and Deloitte, uh, the big four that kind of run the show and have very you know, excellent reputations. And an interesting thing about that, to, at least to me, is that we don't dig in deeper as to the individual partner. And so we have this kind of unstated assumption that one partner at KPMG is interchangeable with another partner at KPMG. 
Um, but there has been empirical evidence in the accounting literature that that's actually not true. And so what I would like to do is to, you know, examine, of course, like we care about the brand of the firm, but also to really highlight the brand of the individual. So, for example, you think of LeBron James, no matter what team he's playing for, he's still LeBron James. And in an ideal world, I think we would have that for auditors as well. So we would care about not just the firm, but we would also care about that individual who's really leading the audit. So the work on this has been mostly outside of the U.S., but there has been you know, a number of papers that's showing um, certain audit partners just have persistent characteristics of the companies that they audit. Certain audit partners are more frequently associated with restatements. Um, they are more frequently associated with accounting conservatism and also accounting, you know, conversely, aggressiveness. And presumably, you just have a partner who's, you know, maybe a little bit more comfortable with certain associate, um, accounting interpretations than other partners. Um, so what I would like to do is to really highlight that variation. And I think that by kind of switching the brand from not just the overall firm, but also to the individual, uh, we would get a couple of benefits. So first, um, you know, we would be better able to distinguish the actual partner leading the audit and the quality of that partner. And so this would allow, you know, audit committees, shareholders, et cetera, to have a more informed viewpoint when they're, you know, selecting the auditor and to select not just KPMG, but X partner at KPMG. Um, second, I think in terms of, you know, I'm an academic, I think in terms of incentives, uh, especially law faculty have a tendency to do that. And if you think of the incentives of that particular auditor when they're leading the audit, if you know, it will become publicly known that there was a failure, not just for KPMG in total, um, but for that specific partner at KPMG, you know, we think they might work a little bit harder. And that, that you know, partner, many audit partners go on to enjoy very lucrative and successful careers um, following their time as a partner. And, you know, if they then have to worry about the reputation, you know, I don't want to be associated with, say, the Mattel audit. Um, you know, there's reason to believe that that could incentivize them to make different decisions. There's also been at least some evidence that we have, you know, the structure of audit design has changed over the past decade or so, in that we have a lot more of the audit is being performed overseas than it used to be. And this is a combination of both component auditors who audit overseas jurisdictions of the company and are disclosed now through form uh, AP, one of the PCIB forms, and then also um, offshore auditors. And the offshore function is, you know, it's typically actually part of the US firm, but it'll be located in, say, India. And so you now have this lead partner um, who's coordinating with, you know, not just all of these different offices and people within the US, but, you know, internationally. And when they've looked at this sort of experimentally, there's been some evidence that holding one person publicly responsible for all of these coordination challenges um, actually improves outcome. It improves effort. It improves audit documentation. So my hope is that by you know, shifting sort of 
the spotlight purely from the brand of the firm and also considering the brand of the actual auditor, um, you know, we can allow some of these stakeholders, like the audit committees, like the shareholders, to make more informed decisions with regard to their auditor. And then we'll also change the incentives of the auditor. And so we can hopefully reduce some of these coordination issues um, and hopefully incentivize that auditor to you know, really put the shareholders and other parties first um, rather than, you know, of course, the client, which is always that there's always that tension there. Um, but if it becomes publicly known that there was a failure on their watch, you know, maybe we can better alleviate that tension. So the auditor scorecards, I guess, are just a step and a tool to help build that individual auditor's brand. Um, right now, the PCOB has Form AP, which discloses the name of the lead engagement partner. Um, but, you know, and that's, I think, a great first step. But you really want more information than just that partner's name. You know, you want background on other audits they performed, on any audit failures at those other locations, and so on and so forth. And a lot of that information is going to be spread across different sources. So an auditor scorecard is just simply, let's put it all in one place and make it easy for people to access. And we have you know, similar things for other people in the securities areas. For example, a broker-dealer, they have a website called BrokerCheck that you can go to that will give you tons of information about a broker before you hire them. And you know, what I would love to see is something similar for auditors. So, Professor, if investors support the auditor scorecard, how do we get from where we are now to a scorecard? Who do we advocate? <laughs> to and what do we ask them for? To me, the most natural place for this to begin would actually be the proxy advisors because when they give the information, you know, when they sort of have a recommendation on a vote for auditor ratification, um, providing basic information about the auditor seems like the obvious next step and that they can tell you, you know, not just, oh, let's ratify PwC, but hey, here is all of the information uh, about this particular partner at PwC. So um, I think the, to me, the obvious location for all of this stuff is really the proxy advisors. Um, I haven't seen any of them doing that yet, but you know, perhaps uh, coming shortly, they will. So speaking of the shareholder auto auditor ratification vote. Uh, your article states that that vote currently is an insufficient source of private enforcement necessary to improve audit quality in part because shareholders lack information about the audit. As you are aware, beginning last year, certain public company auditors are now required to communicate critical audit matters in the auditor's report as a result of a PCAOB uh, 2017 standard to improve the auditor's report. Uh, one reason why CII and many investors supported that uh, 2017 standard was because it was believed that the additional information provided by the CAMs might, at least over time, be useful to shareholders in making more informed auditor ratification votes. So to that end, what, what types of information do you believe CAMs could provide to shareholders that would make them more informed voters on auditor ratification? So, actually, I think the CII guidance on this is excellent. Um, so, you, as you know, um, you guys have a discussion of CAMs 
and you really highlight how like for each critical audit matter, um, there are four characteristics that the auditor must communicate. So first, they need to identify the CAM. Second, they need to describe the principal considerations that led the auditor to determine that the matter is a CAM. Third, they need to describe, uh, describe how the CAM was addressed in the audit. And fourth, uh, refer to the relevant financial statement accounts or disclosures that relate to the critical to the CAM. And you know what we've seen so far is that that third point, um, you know, describing how the CAM was addressed in the audit could be substantially improved. And that there's this note that says, in describing how the CAM was addressed in the auditor, the auditor may describe either the auditor's reproach, response or approach that was most relevant to the matter, a brief overview of the audit procedures performed, an indication of the outcome of the audit procedures, um, and or key observations with respect to the matter. And that what we've seen so far is that the CAMs have highlighted number one and two, you know, the auditor's response and an overview of the procedures that have been performed, but they haven't really gotten into the, you know, an indication of the outcome of these procedures um, or key observations with respect to the matter. And so I think having the auditor actually give some of their thoughts on these specific matters would be really helpful. And you see that much more broad, like when you compare the audit report in the US to audit reports that we see, um, even for same those same companies internationally, they're just drastically different. And internationally, they provide a lot more information in many cases. So I think that would be really interesting and could be really helpful. Um, and you know, if we had that type of information, you know, maybe the auditor ratification votes would be a little bit more useful. Um, the other thing that I think about that CAMs, the other way that I think they could be really interesting from a private enforcement perspective is actually with regard to auditor liability. Because um, right now, following a Supreme Court case, um, you know, about, you know, I guess back in 2011, um, Janus, it was a continuation of a long line of cases which you know, narrowed the ability for um, shareholders to sue traditionally secondary actors such as auditors um, under Rule 10b-5. And under Rule 10b-5, you can either be liable as a primary actor somebody who actually you know, committed the misconduct in question, or a secondary actor, which is traditionally somebody who sort of you know, assisted the primary actor in their malfeasance. And when you think about auditors, you know, traditionally, you, they're much more likely to be a secondary actor than a primary, because they're not actually committing the accounting fraud themselves or the accounting misconduct. Um, you know, it was much more their negligence or recklessness actually allows um, the company to perpetrate the fraud or the misconduct. And so by really restricting the scope of secondary actor liability, um, it's been a huge kind of boon to auditors in terms of their liability risk for shareholders, because it's just much harder now to hold them liable under Rule 10b-5. And following Janus, um, the way the courts have interpreted this case is that if you want to hold an auditor liable um, under Rule 10b-5, 
you need to make out all of the elements of Rule 10b-5 based purely on the audit report. So, because that's really the only part of you know, the financial statements that the auditors are actually doing themselves and have kind of the ultimate authority over. So that's the only part for which they could be primarily liable. Um, so now that we see this change in the audit report, and I think it could potentially open up some of the private litigation that's been foreclosed. And I'm really curious to see whether kind of we bust through some of the restrictions imposed by Janus and do see an increase in private litigation um, against auditors based on this expanded um, audit report. And if so, I think that could be just as much of a, you know, sort of increase in private enforcement as the auditor ratification. That concludes this podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank our special guest, Colleen Honensberg, Associate Professor, Stanford Law School, and author of an excellent article in the Vanderbilt Law Review entitled, The Case for Individual Audit Partner Accountability. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.